morning. You guys hear me okay? Okay, good. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, and uh, we will definitely get to that. But first, I, I think that most of you would agree that recently our nation, our culture, our society has uh, been going through a difficult time in a lot of different ways. We've had this pandemic that doesn't seem to want to go away and is, is kind of re-emerging, at least in our local area and, and in our state. Uh, and really, within the last month or so, it feels like the pandemic is almost the least of our worries. You know, we, we uh, are going through a tough time as a society. We're facing these difficult questions about racism, about justice, about uh, human dignity, about law and order, reform, about change, and what our roles as individuals play in that, what our role as a church plays in that. If you partake in social media or just consume any media, I'm sure that you've been bombarded by all these different viewpoints and uh, mixed messages, and, and it can be very confusing. Uh, it can be daunting uh, to, to kind of wade through all that. And quite frankly, you've probably seen a lot of hate, a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, and a lot of division. You know, more division than we've probably seen in many years in our nation. It can feel heavy to us. It can feel daunting. And as, you know, kind of one person, you're wondering, what can I do? How can I overcome this? Uh, within the past month or so, I've had a lot of people, just people I've interacted with at work or out and about, they've said, man, can you, can you believe what's going on? Or it's getting wild and crazy out there. And, you know, I'll respond with some generic response like, yeah, it's, it's getting crazy, you know, and, and it's, I can't believe it. But the truth is, if I'm honest with myself, I shouldn't be surprised at all. It really shouldn't be a surprise to me. I can think back to recent history. I can think back to a few generations back and my dad has a letter from my grandfather uh, who was in the army, and he had come upon a camp in Buchenwald, Germany uh, that, that his unit helped liberate, and it would have been a place where there would have been stacks of dead bodies that were discarded like yesterday's trash, uh, where there would have been people walking around who looked like corpses because they were so emaciated. Uh, and so we can think about the Holocaust. We can think about the murder of six million Jews simply because of their race, simply because of who they were. We can think back 150 years before that. We can think about the slave trade that our country participated in, in which 12 million people were ripped from their families in Africa and brought like livestock on ships treated like animals, and, and many of them didn't even survive the journey. The ones who did survive uh, were, were sent to a life of hard labor and mistreatment. So you have image bearers of the creator of the universe treated like property and like animals. I can think back to more recent history. From 1973 on, after Roe versus Wade, 50 million boys and girls murdered in their parents' womb. And we could go on and on and on and on. We could 
go back thousands of years through all of documented history and name atrocity after atrocity. And we kind of think to ourselves, like, what happened? How did it all go wrong? Shouldn't we get better as, like, culture progresses? Shouldn't we be more refined as, as people as we move forward? We find ourselves battling this in our own hearts, not only as we look out into the world, but we battle this in our own lives as we face sin day by day, as we struggle against it. It can be daunting. We know what we should do, we know what we should not do, but we so often fail to do it. So I believe this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today really is probably one of the more most important passages in the Bible. It's the key passage to helping us understand all of the chaos that I just spoke about that surrounds us. And it especially helps us understand what goes on in our own hearts as we struggle against sin. This is seven verses that we're looking at this morning, but really they're probably some of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture, really in all of literature. Many of you have studied this passage multiple times in your life. If you grew up in church, you would have been exposed to this very early on. It would have been like one of the first Bible stories that you would have uh, been exposed to. Even most non-Christians, people who've never been to, stepped a foot inside of a church, know who Adam and Eve are. They know the story of eating the forbidden fruit. They kind of have a general understanding of the story of the fall of man. So really, it's entrenched into our culture. But with that said, in general, I feel like we struggle to really understand what's going on in this passage, what it's really telling us. And if we don't understand what's going on here, if we don't get a good grasp of what's going on in these first seven verses of chapter 3 of Genesis, we're really going to struggle understanding the thousands of pages of Scripture that come after it. So what I want us to see this morning, the question I really want us to answer is, what's behind all the chaos? What's the true essence of sin? What's the essence of evil? So I kind of want to drill down beyond all the fruit of the evil that we see around us, the racism, the sexual sin, the abortion, the murder, the genocide. All of these are evil acts. They're evil things. But I want to know what the driving force is behind them. What's the root cause? So before we jump into that, I just want to review where we've been. We've been looking at Genesis these past several weeks. We learned that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything, the universe, all that we see. He created everything out of nothing. We learn that creation sprung forth from his words. In chapter 1 of Genesis, we see this phrase repeated again and again, at, and God said. After this phrase, we see creation coming forward. We learn that the pinnacle of creation was man. And that man was formed in God's own image. In chapter 2, we learn more about the first man and woman. We learn more about Adam and Eve, how they were made for each other. In fact, Eve was formed from Adam's rib, and how in the marriage relationship, they are bound together in one flesh. We see that Adam was called to lovingly serve his wife, 
to lead her, to protect her. Eve was called to serve her husband, to be his helper, to bring completion to him. And, and really, Eve being formed was the completion to God's creation. And together, Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth, and they were called to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. We learned that they were placed in this beautiful garden, a place that had everything they would ever need. A place where they were secure, where they were well fed, where they walked with the Lord. We kind of get this imagery of a priest-like role for man in God's tabernacle, the garden. Adam was given the command to keep the garden and to work it. The Lord gave Adam the access to, and dominion over everything in the garden except this one thing. God warned Adam to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he prohibited him from eating from it. So at the end of chapter 2, we get this beautiful picture as we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, and we see that they were God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And it was paradise. In fact, God says that it was very good. But unfortunately for all of us, for all of humanity to come, it didn't stay that way. So let's take a look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So this is a short passage, seven verses, but the consequences are massive for all of humanity to come. So as we look at these verses, I want us to see three things about sin. I want us to see that sin is deceptive. I want us to see that sin creates disorder. And thirdly, I want us to see that sin always disappoints. It always leads to destruction and misery. And ultimately, when we look at this passage, I want us to see the true essence of sin. So the scene begins with the serpent entering the picture. Now, we need to remember that this is before God had cursed the serpent. So he wasn't slithering around on his belly yet. He wasn't striking the heel of man. He was maybe like an appealing creature, maybe even beautiful. Uh, not the serpent uh, I think of today when I see a snake. That's like my worst fear. That's what my nightmares are made of. I'm scared of those jokers. But in the garden, there would have been nothing physically alarming about the serpent. We're told that he was more crafty or shrewd than all the other beasts. And he talks, right? 
So this is kind of our first sign that there's something supernatural going on here. So the interaction begins with the question. The serpent says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So right off the bat, we get a glimpse of just how crafty the serpent is. First of all, we need to look at how he refers to God here. If you look back at chapter 2, if you have your Bibles open, if you look back and just kind of glance through it, you'll see that God was referred to as the Lord God, Yahweh. This is like the personal name for God. This is the name of the covenant God. This is the name of the God who walked with Adam and Eve personally, the God of creation. But the serpent here uses a different term when referring to God. It was a more generic term. It was like a distant term to describe the Lord. Lord. It's, it's a subtle, it's like a crafty way of, of bringing in distance. So right away we see that the serpent seeks to create distance between Eve and her Lord. You need to notice that the serpent doesn't come in raging against God's commands. He doesn't come in clearly calling on Eve to rebel. The temptation begins with a skeptical question. Did God really say? And I think if we think about our own lives, as we struggle with sin, many temptations that we face begin with that question. Did God really say? We've seen that in our own hearts. We see it in the world around us as people question God's commands and His ways for living. That's how it begins, and that's how the fall of man begins. So let's look at Eve's response to the serpent. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I want you to turn back to chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 16 and 17, and we're going to see what God actually said. And I just want to see if you can pick up on the subtle difference between what Eve is telling the serpent and what God commanded. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. First thing I want you to see is that in verse 3 of chapter 3, Eve adopts the same distant term for God that the serpent used. She does not refer to him as Yahweh. She does not refer to him as her personal Lord. Second thing I want you to see is that Eve is adding to God's command. Eve adds on the part about not even being able to touch the tree. We don't see that in God's command in chapter 2. We have no indication that God actually commanded that. So here we see man's first step towards sin, which is to distance ourselves from God and to modify God's commands which often actually is adding to God's commands. We see Eve beginning to move to the serpent's attitude of painting God as more harsh and repressive. That's one of Satan's favorite tactics, to paint God as a harsh and repressive God. 
So the shrewd serpent has sowed the seeds of doubt, and now he's ready to strike. Let's look at the serpent's response in verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So really, if we kind of read through the rest of chapter 3, at first glance, when we look at it, it seems like the serpent is actually telling some truth here. Look at verse 7. It says, Their eyes were indeed opened, and we know that they didn't die immediately, right? Adam lived to be 930 years old. As we go further in chapter 3, in verse 22, it says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So what's the serpent doing here? He's doing what temptation so often does. He's telling half-truths. Their eyes were opened, but that caused them to realize that they were naked. It caused them to feel shame for the first time. That shame caused them to fear the Lord. It separated them from the Creator, and it caused them to hide from God. And ultimately, it caused for them to be expelled from the garden, expelled from the tabernacle, expelled from God's presence. So the serpent's promises do indeed come true, but in a very different way than if they had been God's promises. They come true in a way that caused destruction, They come true in a way that causes misery and chaos. Whereas God's truths are always for our ultimate good. The serpent seeks their ultimate harm. So the serpent's trap is set. He's kind of done his work and he can just sit back and look at the fruit of his labor here in verse 6. Let's see what happens. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So let's look at the descriptive words that are used here. We have the words good, delight, desire. These are the words of temptation. So we see that Eve was physically tempted. Her flesh was tempted. It was good for food. She was aesthetically tempted. It was a delight to her eyes. And then she was intellectually tempted. She had a desire to be wise. So here we see the fruit of the sin. Her desire takes over. She eats the fruit. With this we see Eve throwing off God's rule and embracing her own desires. One interesting thing about verse 6 is that we learn that Adam has been there the whole time. What's he been doing? I mean, apparently nothing, right? It's kind of like when, you know, you ladies are doing the dishes and your husband's nowhere to be found, right? He's just sitting back, watching it all take place, maybe... At the end, you know, chiming in, but when his wife invites him into the sinful act of disobedience, we don't see any opposition. He just 
eats. I said earlier that sin is deceptive. It creates disorder and it always disappoints. And we've seen the deception by the serpent. Now we see disorder on full display. So far in Genesis, the first two chapters, we've seen that God has been creating. And as He's been creating, He's been creating order in His kingdom. We've seen that the order has been God, man, woman, animal. And here we see that order totally flipped. We see serpent, woman, man, God. That's what sin does. It flips order on its head. It creates disorder. Adam was called to lovingly serve and protect his wife to lead her. And here we see a total failure to lead. He sits back helpless and he just lets it all take place. So men, men who are leading families in here today, is this what your household looks like? Have you abdicated your leadership? Have you exchanged your God-ordained role for your own comfort, for your own hobbies, for your own pursuit of success, for your own desires? Do you view your spouse and kids as some sort of kind of like life accessory that are just there to kind of complete you or make your life look better? They're only a part of your life when it's convenient for you. Are you striving to serve as God intended? Are you serving your family? Are you giving up your life for them? Are you leading them in God's Word? Are you leading them in family worship? Are you looking for opportunities to love them in a way that displays Christ? All of us need to think about this, me included. We all fail at this, but this is what we're striving towards. Because if you are not loving your family in this way, you're leaving them vulnerable, just as Adam did with Eve. So here in Genesis 3, we've seen that sin is deceptive, it's disordered. As we travel further next week, we're going to see that it clearly disappoints But I asked the question earlier, what is the essence of sin? What's at the core? I don't believe that the fruit had some magical power. It's not like the Disney movies, you know, you just eat the the fruit and it changes things. It was obviously the act of disobedience. It was throwing off God's rule. But what was the root force behind the act of disobedience? I don't believe that commandment keeping and breaking is is the essence of sin. That is the essence of all man-made religion. If you keep God's commands, you earn God's favor. If you do enough good to outweigh the bad, you can be saved or, or you can reach enlightenment or uh, you can become your own God. That's the kind of religion that man makes up. Breaking God's command is sin. It is disobedience, but it's not the ultimate essence of sin. To find out what it is, I just want us to look at Jeremiah 2. If you want to flip to that in your Bibles or just listen. 
We're going to read chapter 10 through 13. And this is the Lord speaking through his prophet Jeremiah about the chosen, his chosen people, about Israel and how they've fallen away from him. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or syndicator and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has the nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what shocks creation? What should shock us? What's so shocking about what we just read about in the garden? Here we see in these verses that the Lord says that it is that His people have exchanged His glory for something that doesn't profit. You know, the most beautiful place I've probably ever been, and I was too young to really appreciate it, I was right out of college, but it was in the Swiss Alps. It's gorgeous. I mean, it's kind of like what you picture heaven to look like. I'm sure heaven will be much better, but uh, it's the closest thing I've seen on this earth. So I want you just to kind of picture the most stunningly beautiful place you've ever been. Maybe it's Texarkana. I hope not. I-35, you know, I-30. But no, uh, picture the most beautiful place you've ever been. And what a little bit of what God is saying here is that they have traded in a mansion in the Swiss Alps for a cardboard box in the garbage dump. That's what happened in the garden. And that should shock us. Exchanging in the wonder of glory for rubbish. When we sin, we are exchanging the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns. These cisterns that are leaky, that can't hold water, that can never fully satisfy, that can never sustain you. The shock of evil is that we lose our taste for God and exchange it for broken cisterns. Maybe it's the money cistern, the success cistern, the sex cistern, the political cistern, the social justice cistern. All of these cisterns are broken, and they can never satisfy. Romans 1 gives us more clarity on this in verse 22 through 25, and it says, They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. So can you see the essence of evil? In verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The essence of sin is exchanging God 
for anything else. It's desiring something more than you desire God. That's what we see with Eve. She exchanged God for a piece of fruit and all that it promised. Satan wants us to believe that God is holding out on us. That he's withholding something really exciting in our lives. Something that we're missing out on. That's the essence of every temptation that we face. That there is something better. That we know what's good for us. That we know best. That God is just trying to suppress us. We need to break free because we know what's best for us. And when we believe that in our own heart, the fruit is always going to be sin. That's how humanity entered into sin. That's how we enter into sin day by day. So how do we overcome? As we live in this broken world, as we live in our broken bodies, as we battle sin in our own lives, as we struggle against it, how do we overcome? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How do we overcome? The answer is we can't. Not in our own power. I just want us to jump from the garden to another scene in the Bible. We're jumping thousands and thousands of years later and we're going to a desert in Judea. This place wasn't like the garden. The garden had everything man needed. It was bountiful. It was beautiful. It was lush. It was safe and secure. This place was desolate. It was wild, it was barren, it was dangerous. There was a man in this wilderness who had been led there by the Spirit, and he hadn't eaten for 40 days and he was hungry. We find out that he wasn't alone in this desert. We're told that Satan himself was there, and he was tempting him with everything that he had, with all the power that he had. This is a temptation unlike any temptation you've ever faced. You think you've faced temptation. You haven't faced anything like this. It's not like being tempted with a little Debbie when you're on a diet. This was Satan's full force. All of evil with all of its cunning and craftiness against this man. He first tempts him with food. Next, he tempts him with power and authority. He offers him Everything the world had to offer, all the wealth, all the power, anything he wanted, he would give him. He then tempted his pride. And with all of these temptations, this man answers back with Scripture rebuking this evil. And he never eats the fruit. He doesn't falter. And when Satan had given him all that he had, he departed. He wasn't able to shake this man, who was much more than a man. He was Jesus.
And he, he was able to go through the rest of his life overcoming all of these temptations. And he eventually died on a cross for us so that we could be forgiven. Romans 6 says it, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. This is our hope. This is all we have. It allows us to serve people, to love people. It allows us to pray for our enemies, to do good for our enemies. It's what our culture needs. It needs people to get uncomfortable, to go into places that make you uncomfortable, and tell people about the good news. So walk in love with our actions and definitely with our words. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father, I, I just thank you that you didn't leave us in the desert. That you overcame temptation for us. That you overcame sin so that we can be saved. Help us to place all of our trust in that. Amen.